Hello, as uh, Tom mentioned, my maiden name when I was here was Michelle Lapong, or as Walter used to say, the hand. I am going to talk a little bit tonight about um, what you can do with a Christendom degree. I've done a number of things with it, worked for a nonprofit, a private firm, even a public company. So what can you do with it? How do you actually get ahead? And how do you, how does one make it meaningful? Um, how many here right now have any clue what they're going to do after Christendom? Okay, a few of you do. It's, it's actually a pretty common question that, uh, that we face. You may have a general idea, but what specific job are you going to have? What specific direction are you going to go? Um, you, you may not, I, I didn't know, even as a, as a senior at Christendom College. So in fact, it's been a question that 20-somethings have been asking themselves for many years. I want to show you a movie clip from Amazing Grace. Has anyone here seen the movie? Okay. It's uh, based on a true story about a man born in the 18th century. His name is William Wilberforce. He was born in England, and he graduated from St. John's College in Cambridge with a Bachelor of Arts. At 21, he was not only graduating, but he also had a conversion and became an evangelical Christian. He found God, and he was very moved suddenly to do something different and more meaningful with his life. But he was also very talented. He had a mesmerizing speaking voice, and he was wondering, really, should he take that voice and that talent and apply it to ministry, or should he go out and be active and continue in his political career? And he wrote a friend, he, sorry, he wrote a letter to his friend at the time, William Pitt. William Pitt later went on to become Prime Minister of England. And in the letter, he was explaining this struggle to William. And I'm going to show a scene now where William has just read the letter and he's getting, giving Wilbur, Wilbur, William Wilberforce some feedback on it. William Pitt is putting forth a proposition to William Wilberforce that he intends to go forward and become Prime Minister of England in a very short period of time. And he puts the question to William Wilberforce, do you intend to use your beautiful voice to praise the Lord or change the world? That's really the question William was debating in his life at that moment, at the age of 21. Same, same age as many of you are. It's an excellent question, really, because, uh, like I mentioned, I didn't even know the specific direction my life would take as a senior at Christendom College. But I knew, did know that I needed a path to get a job, and I wanted to do something meaningful with my life. So I was aware of this organization, this pro-life group, Human Life International. I found out they had an internship, or someone from Christendom had once done an internship there, and I applied for it. I got the internship, completed it in my, in my uh, last year at Christendom, and uh, on the very last day of my internship, I was offered a job to come back after I graduated. Now, uh, working for a nonprofit organization has some benefits, and I kind of wanted to go into that. Um, what are the pluses and the minuses? 
First of all, uh, it's a smaller, typically if it's a smaller growing organization, there is more room for advancement, more opportunity there. The pay is lower, but you do get the benefit of the satisfaction that what you're doing is directly helping mankind. And um, it's a bit like the Legion of Mary, where when you go door to door, every time you, the door is open, there's a chance to touch someone's soul. So you are really only limited by the number of doors on which you can knock. And at a nonprofit organization, your biggest limitation is really yourself. It will take all of you if you let it. It will consume you if you let it. But it will also give you a, a, a satisfaction that you may not find in any other type of job. Now, how does God come into the picture? Well, the number of internships that were available at Human Life International, the one that was there for me was the one that was in the development department, the fundraising department. Okay? So there um, I learned how to raise money for nonprofits, how to work with donors, how to send direct mail appeals, and all that sort of thing. Soon after I became director of development, I was there maybe a short period of time, and an opening happened. I assumed some of the roles of being the director of development, and I was given that, that job. A year or so later, the organization was growing, and they needed a director of human resources. So I assumed that role. Uh, pretty soon, though, in my role of HR, I was able to hire a capable person who was very talented, and he took over some of the development and the fundraising work. That freed me up, and I became director of international development. But a couple years after that, international development was growing, and so was the organization, and then I was promoted to assistant vice president. So within a short period of time, I joined the organization as an internship, and within four or five years, I was the assistant vice president of the organization. Now that's the kind of rapid advancement you can have in a smaller nonprofit organization if you put your mind to it. Would I have had that same opportunity in a larger public company at that age? I don't think so. But um, uh, in fact, being, a, being assistant vice president, it carried me to many countries. I've been to more than 20 countries now. I was in Poland soon after the fall of communist rule. I walked through the villages outside of Nairobi where there's no running water, where they're teaching natural family planning on a, on a cloth hung up on a, you know, on a, in a hut, basically. I have been inside the Sydney Opera House in Australia. I visited the chapel where Mary appeared to St. Catherine Labouret and, and gave her the miraculous medal in Paris. And um, I've even driven on the Autobahn in Germany. So. <laughs> So that job took me all over the world in a very short period of time. Now what was behind all that? Well, it was a lot of energy. Turns out what, one thing you've got in abundance in your 20s is energy. So if you apply it, I found that the results were directly proportional to how much energy I put into something. If I was passionate about it, if I followed through on it, if I really focused on it, results happened. We opened up an office in New Zealand, which is still open today. We've got two offices in New Zealand now, in fact, and um, a crisis pregnancy center that wasn't there before. Office in Australia, in Ireland that's still in existence, even in uh, Germany and Austria. So um, there have been lasting effects from that 
energy. At one point, I went with Father Marks on a tour of Ireland. There was this young girl in her teens, she's about 12 years old, and her name was Jana Jessen. Her mother had actually tried to abort her, and she was so resilient, she survived the abortion. She was born and you know, she survived as a baby. She had um, some physical defects, but she had a decent singing voice. And Human Life International took her on a tour all around Ireland at the time when there was some major legislation that was being debated. So I went on this tour with Father Marks and Janet Jensen all up and down the country and uh, really had an impact on how people thought about abortion in Ireland. It was a fantastic experience. As Director of Human Resources, I even helped build a staff of 100 people. And really over that time, I was there for seven years, the organization grew from a from donations of around a few hundred thousand dollars to donations of over 12 million dollars annually. That's in the United States and around the world. So I was I was a part of that. Now I kind of want to share with you what I learned along the way because as you're going into your first job following following college, there are there are a few hard lessons that you learned, and I kind of want to want to give you a, a little bit of insight into what was useful for me or what I would have liked to have heard. First of all, I figured out that uh, I had to look like I, ha I held the higher job that I, that I did. In other words, I had to drop the college clothes, get rid of the ratty shoes, the wrinkled clothes, and actually, you know, get things ironed <laughs> and, and look the part, look like I look like I've already got the next level of the job. Um, I even had very long hair and because I looked kind of young for my age, I cut it so I would look older. Perception was important. We were spiritual beings, but we're also living in a material world, right? So I had to connect that piece. Um, the next thing, I had to learn to balance tasks, tasks and people. Not only, it's important not to only complete each task well, but to develop the relationships along the way with your coworkers, the people above you, and the people below you. It's not unusual for a manager to be proficient in one of those things, either completing the task or great with people. What's difficult is balancing the two and doing both. And if you're going to really move ahead, you've got to manage both. Now, I really wasn't that proficient on the developing relationships part when I first graduated, so I had to learn that, and I had some guidance in that, and I'll get to that in a minute. I also learned that people give to people. So whether you're a donor giving to Christian College, you're really thinking in your mind about Dr. Timothy O'Donnell. He's the face that you have in your mind as you're writing the check, or the students that call and say thank you as part of the, um, the, the annual effort that, that Tom has been involved with before. Um, whether it's the donors giving to people or employees working for their bosses, they're still inspired by people. So people give to people. Uh, one of my, my first boss out of college is actually here with us tonight, sitting right there, Bob alone. And um, he taught me and taught a lot of the staff at Human Life International an important phrase that we keep repeating. We've used it throughout our lives. So you know what it's going to be. <laughs> it's ma maturity is the pause between stimulus and response. 
Maturity is the pause between stimulus and response. The reason we remember this phrase throughout our lives is because we're always maturing. We never get to that point completely. We're growing as people. And there's so many situations where you're in where you want to react, where you want to say something. And especially in the workplace, you've got to got to take that pause. It means watching the emails. Speak it rather than write it in the email. Those emails come back to haunt you. Think before you speak. Strategize before you act. Another thing that I learned was that um, the reality is people talk about you in school and they talk about you in the workplace too. In fact, if they're not talking about you, then you're not doing your job. <laughs> so, so deal with it, really. <laughs> Um, you will get criticized, and people are jealous of success. Human nature doesn't stop in a, in a church, it doesn't stop being human nature in a nonprofit organization, no matter who heads it up. So people will get jealous. On the other hand, you're also in your first job, so you're learning a lot. And you have to, we have to learn to uh, be open to constructive criticism. This was pretty difficult for me. In fact, my first performance review, I was told, doesn't take criticism well. <laughs> so just like when a professor, when a professor is critiquing your paper or makes a comment about an answer that you put on the test, your first reaction is to be defensive, right? Or at least mine was, to be defensive. Um, but really, if you're going to pause, you want to stay quiet, think about it. Assess it. Really learn what you can and move on. As far as what else I learned in my first job, after dedicating seven years, a lot of my life, my heart to the organization, I learned that bad things do happen to good people. So um, I am nearly 40, and everyone I know has been, nearly everyone I know has been fired at one point. And that happened to me too. There was a struggle of power in the organization, a coup, if you want to call it that, and I was escorted out of the building. Hard to believe, right, after all of that. But, you know, maybe that was the only way I would ever leave. God had his plan, and he had a hand in things. Now, I uh, just want to make a point that uh, the the priest who heads up HLI now, Father Eitenauer, has actually reached out to us after that. And um, things have been reconciled and so forth years down the road. But at the time, it was pretty uh, pretty traumatic <laughs> to, to have to go through that. Here I had this advancing in the organization, brought, you know, careers going great, and then stop. Well, what did I, what did I do with that? One thing I learned is that um, don't get too comfortable. You are replaceable in the job market. <laughs> there's always someone, just like in school, in college, and throughout your life, there's always going to be someone smarter than you. And comfortingly, there's always someone about a little less smart, too. So you can get through. But um, the other thing was that I learned to separate the cause from the job. So even though I was very, very passionate still about the pro-life movement, well, the movement was not the job. It's kind of like you learn when things happen in the Catholic Church. Our, our relationship is with Christ, right? First, first and foremost, with God the Father. So when bad things happen in the church, you have to focus on your relationship with God and not some of the messy things that happen in the church. 
I just want to give you that little bit of insight because a lot of you may end up working for nonprofits, and it's not going to be even as even as um, smooth as, as it is at Christendom. There's going to be politics. There's going to be some suffering. You're going to have to struggle as well. But um, I don't regret it at all. Now I've been let go from HLI. I started a little bit of my own uh, consulting business, fundraising business. But really, what was the next step in my life? And it was kind of an odd thing, odd place where God ended up leading me to. I ended up working for a firm called the Dealey Strategy Group. It's a small management consulting firm in the commercial satellite industry. So it's a little bit odd going from a nonprofit organization suddenly to the high tech field. How did how did I how did I do it really? I ended up going from starting pro-life organizations overseas to working with executives at Boeing, the Boeing company, top executives, helping Wall Street investors at Morgan Stanley assess whether they're going to put millions of dollars into a new satellite venture, helping entrepreneurs write business plans, and even helping them find venture capital investors seed money to launch new businesses. So just to give you a little bit of insight into how I got this job, how did I take this liberal arts degree and go into the high technology field? I obviously had no engineering background, right? I, I had um, no finance background, very little. I had some management expertise, and I had some skills that I learned at Christendom. Well, first of all, I knew someone who knew someone. And that's how you get a lot of your jobs, and sometimes the best jobs. So I wasn't a very good networker in my 20s. Networker being somebody who stays in touch and develops professional contacts and cultivates them and so forth. But I, um, I did know someone who was a good networker. And he was a student at one point of my future boss. And he gave my resume to my future boss, and I, and I was called in for an interview. Would I have gotten that interview if I didn't know someone who knows someone? No. In fact, this firm was so small, around eight people, they would later, people that I would work with would later ask me, how did you get that job? <laughs> so how did the job process work? Okay, I've given my resume, it says nonprofit and Christendom College and all of that. How did I get this job? Well. Uh, my, my boss, future boss here at the time, his name is John Dealey, he actually was a, um, he was raised in, uh, as a Catholic and educated the Je by the Jesuits. So he had a little place in his heart for, for, for me as a Catholic. But he brought me in and I went through an all-day interview process. I met with him and then he called in each member of the staff to ask me questions. So. You know, what could I say? I didn't really know a lot about satellites, how they worked. He asked me, did I have any, any engineering background? And my response was, well, my dad is a computer engineer. It must be in my genes. <laughs> he said, okay, I can accept that. <laughs> and after the whole day, I left. And at the end, they said, okay, well, we'd like a writing sample from you. Turns out, they had just signed this big contract with the Boeing company, and really what he wanted was someone who could write and edit. All right, I can do that. So 
So I thought, okay, now I have to give the best writing sample I can find. Now, what did I find? Well, uh, over my years at HLI, I had taken one graduate class in strategic management. Strategic management, at least strategy group, that will work. Picked up the paper, looked at it very closely, made sure everything was perfect, the grammar, the punctuation, sent it in. He had, John had his daughter, Anne, who was an attorney, read over the paper. And I found out later she could not find one correction. Wow. <laughs> Perfection. <laughs> so, uh, but that wasn't the end of it. It's not like I got the job because of that. It meant that I was being considered. Now, I had to actually call and take the initiative. It had been a week or two I hadn't heard, so I called. And, he's, and John said, well, I, um, let me talk to my people. I, let me get some more feedback, and I'll let you know. Meanwhile, I waited a few hours, called back again. Okay, well, we're still thinking about it. Call back again. So I'm, I'm you know, wringing my hands, thinking about it. And finally, I uh, ca called back a third time. He said, okay, we liked you. Can you come in here and accept the offer? Yes! Got it in my car, living in Front Royal, drove the hour out to Washington, D.C. on a moment's notice and got the offer. So that's how I landed the job in the high technology field, it was because of my writing ability. And when you think about it, look at all the papers you're writing here at Christendom College. You know, nearly, when I was here, nearly every class, 10 or 12 page paper, right? By the end of the time you leave, you can churn those things out overnight nearly. That's the kind of experience that really bodes well for you in the workforce. You would be surprised at how few people can write decently. That's why I was hired, because I could write and I could edit. The other reason was because I could think and assess. One of the things I've been struck with years later is how the political philosophy classes with Dr. Lucky. You're looking at Kant philosophy or whatever, you're talking about it, you're assessing it, you're thinking about it, you're approaching it from different angles. Those are the skills that really help you in meetings, in the workplace, thinking on your feet, participating in class. It's not that much different than participating in a meeting in, in business. Uh, the philosophy classes in particular are helpful. Well, I landed the job, but you know, I had to keep it. <laughs> So how did I keep it? I ended up working, 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 working. I, I, I would start work, the, t the, the day was actually set from 8.30 in the morning until 6.30 at night. And often I would work till 8 or 9 o'clock at night. That was for a couple years. That was earning my way, earning my way. Um, it brings up the point that no matter where you are, if you're going to move ahead, you got to work harder than the next guy, and smarter too. But I did learn a lot. In fact, it's a very intensive environment. John Dealey, my new boss, had been, uh, helped actually launch the commercial satellite industry. And by commercial, I mean, you've got the government industry, which is like um, the spy satellites, right? But then you also have the commercial industry, which takes the, the communications from your cell phone, how do you think you talk to someone in Australia that's going over satellite? Um, or sends your, your media feed from Iraq over to the United States on Fox News. That's the commercial satellite industry. So he had helped launch the industry, and he had been president 
former president of a Fortune 500 company, and he also was a professor of mergers and acquisitions at Georgetown University. So I was basically working for a very demanding professor. <laughs> and what I got during that time there was what I think was the equivalent of an MBA. I learned it on the job. I ended up interacting with executives at Boeing, learning how they think, what questions did they ask, how did they make decisions. One of the things that always fascinated me about Star Trek, for example, was infinity and beyond, great, they traveled all over, but also how did, how did Kirk and Picard you know, make these decisions on the spot so quickly? Because that's what, a lot of what you do in business is, is making decisions. The work, the hard work, the time I put in did pay off. Within five years, I had quadrupled my salary from working in a, from working in a nonprofit organization. So that's the other side of working for a private firm. If you can get in there, learn what you have to do, put in the time and the effort, the rewards can be pretty substantial financially. In fact, it was the the compensation was structured such that. We had a base salary, but at the end of the year, depending on how well the company did, I could earn even up to 50% or 100% of my base salary. So Christmas was, you know, joyful for more than one reason. Um, <laughs> All right, now what did John teach me? John actually is um, the kind of person that top executives in the field will go to him for career advice. So I want to pass a little bit of what I learned on to you all. One of the things that I was that was sort of pounded into me was transaction completion. And what does that mean? It's really do something and then follow up to make sure it was done correctly. It's a basic management principle because say you you have a staff or you have an employee, you delegate something, they have to um, send a report to another person. Well, follow up and ask them, did they get the report? If you're asking a question about, did a vendor get paid a million dollars? Two days later, follow up, did that, did that actually happen? You won't believe it's a simple thing. We thought, oh, this guy's crazy, you know, he's making this email things, and then call the executives to make sure they receive the report, these presentations that we prepared. We'd be surprised how many times if we hadn't called, or if we hadn't followed up, something would have gotten messed up. You know? And you just would thank yourself and say, it's a good thing I did it. <laughs> the other thing he, he drilled into us was to read the contract. I know this sounds kind of foreign to you all, but it's like read the textbook, right? There's some value to it because when you go into a meeting or you're um, being asked a question by your boss, well, you're the one that actually read the contract or the equivalent of reading the textbook. You actually have a little bit deeper knowledge and you can, you can answer the question. You also need to be able to support your facts. Preparing for meetings is like preparing for a test. Read the contract, read the emails that you got surrounding the issue, and then, um, and then go in there. Now sometimes there are competing priorities. So instead of just preparing, you cram, right? You bring the stuff, try to read it as fast as you can, but you go in there. But definitely you've got to do something, either, pre either prepare or cram for the meeting. When you're in a meeting, and a boss asks you a question, it's important to answer the question directly. It's not a time for a soliloquy. So 
When you think about when you participate in class, do you ahead of time say in your mind what, how, how the question is going to come out? You kind of practice it in your head a little bit or you think about it. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But uh, when, when you're asked a question by like, the CEO of a company, it's good to come out with either yes, no, the very first in the very first part of the answer, or if you don't know, it's okay, but say, I'll check on it and get right back to you. But start off with yes or no, and then you can go ahead and give your explanation. Otherwise, if you give your explanation first, they're just like waiting for you to get to the point where you answer the question. <laughs> so uh, be direct and, and get back to your executive right away if you don't know. In dealing with, um, with people in the workplace, everyone's got their own priorities, their own deadlines, and they're not yours. But meanwhile, you've got to go ahead and prepare, prepare a report, or you've got to get, get a contract executed or get something accomplished. If you keep sending out emails, you get no response. What I was taught was, well, get up off your seat, walk over and talk to the person. Right? That's like a, I, I try to instill this in my own staff because there's a tendency to just send an email. We're like a text message world, right? Send an email. But if it doesn't work, hey, that's where the developing relationships part comes in. Get up, walk over, talk to the person. You'll be amazed how, at the results you'll get, better than if you just, um, you just kept sending the emails. The other thing is you don't want to be in a position where you're offering an excuse. Well, so-and-so didn't get back to me. <laughs> That doesn't fly. This just doesn't fly in the corporate world. You've got to make things happen. Well, I had, um, speaking of being in meetings, I had sort of a soft voice. And I was taught, I had to be trained to really project my voice in a meeting. So it's not good enough to just be confident. You've got to sound confident, too. And for a woman, I had to actually go a little bit lower in my resonance, the resonance of my voice, so I could project. And even before I would go into a meeting, John would say to me, now remember, project, right? So these are things that, you know, it's helpful to have somebody tell you. It's helpful to, to get this guidance. Finally, what I learned in this job was um, to be a person that sticks with you, that keeps your word. So just like here at Christendom, you've got a deadline, you've got to turn your paper on time. Well, in the workforce, you've got to turn, you got to meet the deadlines, you've got to turn in the report on time, you've got to execute a contract on time. And if it means staying late, like staying up all night to complete the paper, well, that's what it means in the workplace too. That's what a lot of what attorneys do. In fact, one of the reasons I was um, hesitant to become an attorney and never follow that was because they really put a lot of time outside of your normal business hours into completing these documents. You've got to write well and it's all about billable hours. How much time can you put into something? But you got to do it. you got to file the document. Well, one of the things that the Dealey Strategy Group did was to help launch John Dealey in particular helped launch XM Satellite Radio. Have you guys all know what XM is? The, okay, good. There was a time when I could ask that question that everyone draws a blank. 
we've grown up a little bit since then. It's, um, it was on the NASDAQ 100. We're now a billion dollar annual revenue company. It's a pretty cool place to work. You know, Bonnie Raitt's there, I get to see her. You hear about Paul McCartney coming in the previous weekend, and um, every now and then I can slip down to the performance studios and actually attend a concert with 40 of my closest coworkers. So it's, uh, it's a great place. Now, the other side of it is because we are launching a new industry, it's what we call a disruptive technology. And whenever you disrupt something, people like to sue you and talk about you. <laughs> so we've actually had, oh, so many lawsuits. In addition to the cool part of attending conferences and, and seeing celebrities, we also had to be very careful about what we've put in writing. We had to have our offices sweeped for what's called discovery because lawyers would come in and take all of our documents to see if they were applicable to various lawsuits. Basically, everyone wanted a piece of us in terms of money. And um, you, you get a little gun shy and also used to just working in that environment. We had a very big rivalry with the one other satellite radio company in the United States. That company is called Sirius Satellite Radio. It's sort of like the East versus West game. <laughs> the rivalry never goes away. <laughs> we're going to beat them, we're going to crush them. So <laughs> and, and we, starting a company, was very much like that. So very similar in a way to working for a nonprofit, right? You've got a cause, you've got to win, you're going to end abortion. Well here, it's a sort of a business type cause. We're going to bring satellite radio and we're going to crush serious satellite radio. The other thing that was um, different about working in a public company versus a nonprofit or a private firm was that, gee, I not only have a boss to report to and a board of directors, but I got a whole bunch of shareholders that own stock. I got millions of people. It's almost like, who don't I report to, really? You know? And you're also interacting with so many different groups and departments that it's really not about power as much as it is about teamwork if you're going to move forward and launch a new industry. We, I also got involved in accounting regulations and disclosures. Basically, as a, as a, as a person who's a, uh, an employee in a public company, you have to ask yourself, what do shareholders, basically the owners of a company, have a right to know? And if you have integrity, you've got to tell them. This is a big, this is the whole Enron issue. So we spend a lot of time thinking about, are we giving the proper disclosure? Are, we are our books and records accurate? Do we have integrity in how we deal with people? I'm going to talk a minute about um, being a Catholic in a secular workforce. Because up until that point, I'd, I'd been in a very Catholic environment at Human Life International. We were paid to go to daily mass. <laughs> that was part of our lunch period, right? And in the private firm, well, it's small enough. My faith was supported. I was told to go and attend Good Friday prayer. That was a good thing. But now I'm in a secular workforce and working with a thousand people. Okay, how Catholic can you be? Well, I don't carry, I don't have religious articles on my desk. I um, am careful about 
how I speak to people generally. But you find out soon enough who's Catholic also or who's Christian through things like comments such as, oh, yes, Easter weekend I'm going to Mass on Sunday. Oh, I am too. Yes, I'm a practicing Catholic. Oh, really? That's how you find out how even some of the top executives in the company are practicing Catholics, and, and then you know. Also, over time, people, people suspect. <laughs> they get to know. For example, um, I, I really, swearing occurs in the workplace. I usually you know, I don't swear. And I suddenly found it odd that people around me didn't swear either. Or if they did, they would apologize. So it's just really about treating other people with respect and that you would get that back too. Over time, I ended up developing closer relationships with people. And then you might be able to have the opportunity to talk to them about, gee, have you thought about going back to church? Or, you know, I've, this, is, this is what my faith means to me. I've even talked about the pro-life movement, but in a way that says, yes, I work with an organization that um, I volunteer with an organization, I work with an organization that gives an alternative to women looking for an abortion. So there are ways to do it. Um, switching from that topic onto sort of how do you, while you're doing this, while you're trying to be a practicing Catholic in the world, how do you advance in your career? One of the things I learned is in a larger company, don't be afraid to market yourself. We tend to be instilled in us that we have to be humble. Okay, humble is also facing the reality about yourself. So it's okay to let your boss know, hey, I thought of this, I've got this idea. Or to let the CFO know several levels up, this is something that I completed. Not in a bragging way, but more in an informative way. Also in a meeting, you can speak up, and people then learn to respect you for, for what you say and the knowledge that you carry. I started as a, as a contractor at um, XM, and I wasn't given the most glamorous job when I first started there. Here I had been working for a management consulting company, talking with Boeing executives and all of that, and going to Wall Street. But what they needed at XM was something completely different. They were, we were about to launch service. We had put up two satellites in the sky to provide the radio service, but we also had an 800 repeater network. We had to build 800 repeaters across the entire United States. We had to do it really fast. So what they needed was someone to come in and help them with that. It was pretty much, you, I walked in, here's a whole bunch of documents, architectural drawings. Okay, fix this. It was, it was a sink or swim type situation. And my big job, I say that sarcastically, was to create a map of the United States. And I had color pushpins. And the color of each pushpin designated how complete the repeater site was. So if the site was complete, it was red. Real exciting, right? But the interesting thing was that this was important to the CEO. And once a week, he would walk over to that map, and he wanted to see how many red pushpins there were in that map. So I, I did okay with that. I was a little, okay, this is one of those jobs. 
you just do, right? But after I did that well, they started giving me more work and more complex work. And it turns out that, well, the construction contractor who was building the repeater sites would send us bills, like a folder this thick. And they decided to give them to me, along with a contract that was about this thick. And the, fold, the bills came into folders this thick every month and say, tell us if we should pay it. Okay. <laughs> Back to reading the contract. <laughs> and, um, and then I started digging into it, a lot of detail. Now here's the thing, sometimes the job, the work can be tedious, but what do you get out of it? Well, it got a little bit more interesting when I found a couple of errors. And then I thought, well, I wonder how many more I could find. I wonder, gee, it's a large program. I wonder if all the work is even being done correctly. And the more I dug, it's like CSI, the more I dug, I found $2 million in billing errors and overbuilding. All right. <laughs> this is interesting now. Suddenly, there were negotiations. Head exec you know, top executives were involved, and we ended up coming to an agreement where we did save the company, I did save the company $2 million. So then they figured I was good at finance. <laughs> now this is kind of funny because, or ironic, because in every job I had had so far, I was told, you really should learn more about finance. You really need to beef up that area of your expertise. And it was one of those areas where I thought, you know, I never saw myself doing that. I'm more of a writer. But what do you know? They, they've taught me accounting. Now, I had no background in accounting. I hadn't taken an accounting class. Uh, I never taught debits and credits. What are those? How does the whole thing work? But they taught me accounting. That's what needed to be done. So before you knew it, I was closing the books for one of the major cost centers there. And once I learned about the numbers, they said, well, we need a budget. We started planning budgets. And it wasn't long before I was building the budget for a $300 million cost center within the group and closing the books, and reviewing the contracts, etc. I guess the point here is that don't underestimate your abilities. Just because you haven't done it doesn't mean you can't. Eventually, the CEO even pulled me out of what I was doing to help write a script for the quarterly conference call. And what this is, it's when the company gets on the phone and talks to shareholders and Wall Street. And you get to ask questions. But first you have to come up with a report about your financials every month. And I would write that script. Now why did I get pulled into that? That was not part of my regular job at XM. It goes back to the writing again. Gee, those Kristen papers really pay off. <laughs> so, so I got to work with the top executives of the company, help them craft a message that we gave to the public about our financial results. And it was also became a tool for the company to really, it's like a retreat in a way. We really started hashing out, what did we do? What did we succeed at? Why did we fail? What are we gonna do next time? Really, it was a great learning experience. Basically, 
I got these higher tasks because I performed even the tedious ones and the smaller ones well. So once you perform them well, they like to give you more. And your complexity will increase, the challenges will increase. It takes a little bit of patience to get to that point sometimes, because you're feeling I can do, I can do, be way up there doing something more interesting, but you will get there. And I found in my experience that I do the job at the higher level first, and then I've been promoted. In fact, I was promoted uh, last week. So um, I'm now Vice President of Finance at Exxon Salary Radio. <laughs> but I'm already thinking ahead to my next job. And the reason is because times are a little bit different than when our parents were in the workforce. People don't have jobs for 20 years. And it turns out, all this time we were willing to crush Sirius and going out and competing against them, our top executives were hashing out a merger deal. So, now we've had a merger agreement for a year. We might be combined with our top competitor in the next few weeks, and there's gonna be consolidation. Now, I'm actually not worried about that because People take care of you. We've got a decent severance package. So either way, I'm willing to see what God has in store for me. This could be good. God has a plan for me. Whether I stay at XM or whether I leave, both are going to be an equally good choice. Now, I just want to spend a couple minutes talking about the benefit of having a mentor. Here at Christendom College, your mentors are really your professors. Right? They're, they're teaching you knowledge but also they're teaching you more than that. And you've got a unique opportunity here to get to know your professors in a way that a lot of college students don't. But your boss is your most likely mentor. So when you go look for a job, it's not just about the tasks you're gonna be performing, but about who are you working for. In my experience, it's not, as mu it's not so much about what I'm doing, but who I'm with. Think about how much time you're spending at work eight hours, nine hours, ten hours a day, depending. You're with these people a lot. So find a boss who's going to be a mentor to you. When I was uh, looking at a, a new job, I actually had, at the time I had the offer from the Dealey Strategy Group, I also had an offer to be a VP at another nonprofit. So I could have gone on and done what I had already been doing, or I could choose something a little bit different, work for a high technology company, but also learn something from, from my new boss. And I chose that. In fact, um, William Wilberforce from Amazing Grace, he had a mentor too. His mentor was John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader who ended up becoming an Anglican minister. He wrote the hymn, Face Review and Expectations. We know it as Amazing Grace. This man gave William Wilberforce the support and the drive and the, the knowledge that he needed to carry on and persevere. A mentor actually will believe in you, supports you, mirrors you the truth about yourself. Bob was my first mentor. And look, at he's here tonight. <laughs> You also want to look for someone who's got integrity and loyalty in your boss. 
and as well, you have to have integrity too. If you make a mistake, the best thing is fess up right away. Be the one to show your boss your mistake, but before you do, come up with a solution. So you're not only giving the problem, but the solution at the same time. You'll be respected for that. The best employee, I think, actually anticipates what the boss needs before it is requested. Like when you're taking notes for class, aren't you thinking, is this going to be on the test? Is this not going to be on the test, right? Well, it's the same thing in the, work, in the workforce. You want to anticipate what, is going to, what the company needs and what your boss needs and have it ready. That will, that will be impressive to them. Okay, just a few quick points here. Don't limit yourself to a specific career or type of job based on your major. My major was political science. Yay, Dr. Lucky. <laughs> I learned a lot, like I said, I learned how to think, analyze, to write well, just participate in meetings and just like I did in class, and that's carried me well. But with that degree, with the whole Christendom package, I was able to work for a nonprofit, work in the high technology field, become a vice president of finance even. The offices that I started in New Zealand, the pro-life offices in New Zealand and in Germany and around the world, they're still going. They're still saving babies. Um, even I'm working on the side now, I've developed this consulting business where I'm working with nonprofits and the pro-life movement. And one of the things I encourage you to do is to continue to be involved in some way in the pro-life movement. If you were in Germany at the time of Hitler, what would you do? We have 42 million babies worldwide dying every year. This is the cause of our day. I uh, was just last weekend in New Orleans. I worked with a woman whom I met through a Christian board director, as a matter of fact. After Hurricane Katrina came through New Orleans, their crisis pregnancy center was devastated, and she needed some help fundraising to reopen it. Well, they reopened their main office last year, and this weekend, this past weekend, they opened up a satellite office right next door to the largest regional abortion clinic in the area. So when, you, when a woman pulls in in her car into the parking lot for the abortion clinic, she gets out and she sees a sign, free pregnancy testing, free counseling, and it's the Pro-Life Crisis Pregnancy Center. She opened that up, and in the first morning, they had four women come through the door, four potential lives to save. So no matter whether you're working in the pro-life movement full-time, or through your parish, respect life group, or doing volunteering on the side, please participate in some way. Let's go back to William Wilberforce, if we can. <laughs> What did he choose? Remember, William Pitt, who later became Prime Minister of England, said to William, how do you intend to use your beautiful voice, your talent essentially, to praise the Lord or change the world? So what did he do? He got his Bachelor of Arts, did not graduate with honors. And William Wilberforce, though, chose both. 
He agreed, after this discussion with the abolitionist leaders, he agreed to formally lead the cause of banning slavery in Parliament. He introduced a bill, he raised public awareness, and he reintroduced the bill, and he reintroduced the bill again. He had to do it year after year as people's awareness was gradually being raised that slavery is wrong. He never faltered. Despite frustration, despite hostility, and even poor health, he brought that forward, that bill forward again year after year. And William Pitt remained his friend throughout. Finally, in 1833, following a wave of popular agitation and changing public opinion, the bill for the abolition of slavery was ensured of passing. News was rushed to William Wilberforce, who died three days later. He gave his life. And he was buried in Westminster Abbey next to his friend, William Pitt. On his tombstone, the inscription reads, In an age and country, fertile in great and good men, he was among the foremost of those who fixed the character of their times. So if you ask me, what can I do with a Christian degree? Praise the Lord or change the world? May I humbly suggest you can do both. She's got a lot of power behind her, a lot of interior strength. 
she'll wear a suit all the time, but she's also trying to offset her, her diminutive status. I know that sounds a little bit odd, but I mean, that's just sort of the reality is sometimes you want to take a look at what you present and give it a little bit of a boost to help you. But yes, definitely follow, follow your, follow the top executives, look at the, how the women and the men dress a couple levels above you, and you're fine following that. <laughs> and for me, the first reason is because of my faith, but I don't know if that's the best way to answer the question. And there are other reasons I could give. So, how would, do you think it's the best way to answer that? Well, I usually speak to the um, to the the highest standard of academic excellence at the college. I wanted to be challenged. I found that I was challenged academically there. Gives me broad broad skills and knowledge. That's that's usually the more you know a safer answer. I found I found um, once you get past that first job, they don't really ask you about your 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 alma mater anyhow. Just getting that first one. Anything else? I'm, <laughs> I'm going to leave that to Marie Miller. You can pass that request out of her. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming.